0: We wanted to talk about what's happening with the We Charity scandal, where things stand right now. So let's bring in David Moskrop. He's the author of Too Dumb for Democracy, also the host of the Open to Debate podcast. He's also a post-docs, uh, postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. And David Moskrop joins me now to talk a little bit more about the scandal. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. What is your take on the We Charity scandal, the latest in the uh, revelation we heard from the finance minister yesterday forgetting to repay the $41,000? So what is your response to what we have learned about this so far?
1: I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason that you know, when in doubt, incompetence uh, does more explaining than malice, right? And And I, and I truly think that this isn't, a case of malice. I don't think it's a case of quid pro quo. I don't think it's a case of some nefarious plot. I think it's a case of incompetence and, you know, a culture of uh, entitlement and, you know, the cult of the insider that that sort of dominates Ottawa and and political life in Canada. That's a whole problem in and of itself, but it's a different one than quid pro quo.
0: It's almost a case of the finance minister is so rich and so forgetful that he honestly didn't remember he owed someone $41,000. Which
2: is
1: bananas, right? I mean, (laughs) you know, in 2017, the the median annual income for a single Canadian was $31,000 for a family. It was roughly $92,000. So when someone looks at this and says, oh, he, he misplaced... Forty-one thousand dollars in change after repaying. By the way, fifty-two thousand uh, dollars related to another trip. There were two trips involved. One was partially was repaid. One wasn't. Uh, you know, I, I you, you're stunned, and, and it's stunning, and it's outrageous. But you know, and, and you have a, I, I certainly I was outraged, and I think a lot of folks will be, and they have a right to be. But the the, the conclusions we can draw from that right now are are fairly limited given the, the information we have. The good news is there's going to be lots of investigations into this. This is going to be poked and prodded and investigated for the foreseeable future.
0: Right, because even if it is a case of forgetfulness rather than corruption, then the obvious question is, well, why do we have a finance minister then who is so forgetful with his own money? How can he be trusted to deal with billions of taxpayer dollars?
1: And why? And also, you know, is this the sort of thing that should be happening in the first place? And, and you know, again, that that speaks to the cult of the insider, into you know what what we know from history as the Chateau clique and the family compact—the idea that Canada is run by a fairly you know small group of of folks who are insiders, and everyone else is left on the outside. Uh, you know, that that's a problem. Uh, again, though, you're right. Though, if, if it is an accounting error, it's a pretty bad one. And you would think—I mean, the, the finance minister repaid the forty-one thousand dollars. I think the day that he appeared at the committee, or something like that just before appearing at the committee, uh, you know, you would do your due diligence the moment the we scandal began. You know, this was, this is not new. This has been going on for a while. Wouldn't you want to take care of that immediately? I mean, you know what's the problem. What, what's so stunning to me is that there's a slow drip of new and damning news that comes out about this, That that's just being quote unquote discovered day by day. But like, you know, wouldn't you as a government who, who've been through this before, by the way, a handful of times be on top of that from day one? And if not, how much is there to dig up? I mean, all of it is, is deeply problematic.
0: Uh, there have been many calls, uh, a lot of them coming from the Conservatives, uh, for Bill Morneau to resign or that he should lose the portfolio of finance minister. Uh, do you think that's a reasonable call at this point?
1: Yeah, I, I think he should go. And, and and I think he should go for the simple reason that uh, as a minister of the Crown, your duty is, for, is to the government. And at this point, this has compromised uh, in his his ability to do his job and it's going to harm the government and i think people have, re- have resigned for less and it would be the appropriate thing to do but again uh, you know because and, and this is here's the deal if you're going to go into politics you've got to be better than the rules and that might not seem fair but tough you know that's that's the bargain you make and it's like that old line from Sir Robert Bolt writing about Thomas More, you know, it's not, it's not enough to be good. You, you need to be known to be good. And if you can't, well, then you're going to hurt the public trust. You're going to hurt the government. You're going to distract from things that we need to deal with. And that's just not going to work. We need to move on with our lives. And we're in the midst of a pandemic. We're facing an unprecedented deficit in debt. We don't have time for this nonsense. We've got to move on.
0: Uh, you mentioned that people have resigned over less, and the first thing that came to my mind was Bev Oda resigning her yep. post for a $16 glass of orange juice, and remember the the scandal and the outrage over that when that happened, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, here we have this, the sole-sourced contract, the revelation that uh, neither men recused themselves from this vote, just this this very close-tied relationship between the We Charity and the Trudos and the uh, how do How do you get to a position like that without even the people around you, even if Justin Trudeau and Bill Morneau didn't realize what they were doing was wrong, how do you get to that point without somebody around them in that inner circle saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't going to work out well?
1: Well, maybe someone did. I mean, we, we may never know. But I, I would imagine, as always, it's a combination of sort of fatigue, ignorance, arrogance, and entitlement, which explains large periods of governance in Canada, <laughs> I mean, it's it is, especially with the Liberal Party. So I, I would imagine it was that. You know, either somebody flagged it and said, well, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. Uh, we can, you know, this, this there's nothing wrong with this. But plainly, people thought differently. Um the, the the recusal thing is interesting though because that's even more of a mess than you might think, because the the prime minister and the finance minister didn't recuse themselves from the from the decision and then they apologized for it and said okay we're sorry for not doing that, and then a little while later the clerk of the privy council appears at the committee and says oh the finance minister and the prime minister can't recuse themselves from this decision, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you've yeah. got a situation where you've got nine hundred and fourteen million dollars whatever it is going out the door and you're Prime Minister and your finance minister can't be a part of that, then there's a huge problem. You know, we can't spend a billion dollars in this country with the PM and finance minister saying, oh, sorry, we can't help you with this. You know, it's none of our business, right? And so, so what are they apologizing for? If they couldn't have recused themselves, then there's no reason for them to apologize. If they could, they should have, but plainly they couldn't have, which exposes a serious problem with the system. And again, this sort of tight-knit culture of those on the inside, and that's the structural thing we've got to deal with at some point, or this sort of thing is just going to keep happening.
0: Well, and this is, as you know, the third time that the prime minister has found himself the subject of an ethics committee committee investigation. Do you think this is the one, though, that people are paying more attention to? And it seems that like the SNC Lavalin, uh, the Aga Khan, sure, they were news and, and they they were in the news headlines for a certain amount of time. It seems to me, though, that people this one is sticking and people are are, are smelling the stench of this one. <coughs>
1: Uh, I mean, so the Aga Khan thing came and went pretty fast. Blackface came and went pretty fast, uh, stunningly. Uh, The Bill Morneau and the French villa and the corporation that that wasn't properly accounted for in France, that came and went pretty fast. Uh, This, you know, SNC lingered for a long time, and Mm -hmm. SNC lingered for months and months and months. This might, too. Uh, There's something tangible about this. I mean, there's a couple things going on. There's a slow drip which is one of the things that keeps it in the news. There are investigations. That's another thing that keeps it in the news. And, you know, we'll have an ethics commissioner investigation. The finance committee is on it. I, I, either the ethics committee is considering it or they've started I can't remember. So there's lots of looking around. That'll keep it in the news. But there's something tangible about the outrage of, like, look at what these people think they can get away with while I'm struggling through the day. And I think in the midst of a pandemic, when people aren't sure about their mortgages, they're not sure about their jobs, they're not sure about their groceries, there might be even even added layer of outrage. Like, you forget $41,000, and I might miss my rent next month, and that'll be the end of it, uh, which might keep things going, too. Which is disappointing. You know, I, I understand that. I I share that. Um, but again, it exposes the fact that we are, aren't dealing with the structural problems, and, and that's, that's part of that tragedy. But I, I do think it'll have legs for a while. The question is, is it going to lead to anything? You know, and, and, and ultimately, is it going to lead to an election? Because I don't think the opposition parties want an election right now. Right? They're not ready for it. So that might give the liberals a little bit of breathing room.
0: All right. Uh, David Moskrop, will leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Well, as uh, you just heard, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry bringing in another order, and this one has to do with rentals, whether it's Airbnb, houseboats, places where people would gather in groups, they are now going to be limited. Sounds like they'll be limited to the same number of people you can have at a restaurant, six people per table. It can't to be more than six, and you can't be hopping from table to table. Those are in addition to the restrictions announced yesterday, and those were focused on restaurants, bars, pubs, clubs. Uh, Dr. Henry saying people must sit at their assigned seats no table hopping no dancing no crowding around and that is because of the increase in the number of cases that we've seen in this province so what does that mean for people who run businesses that uh, in fact rely on people interacting and being in those types of situations well Sebastian Barkovic is the owner of Concept Nightclub in Nanaimo and joins me on the line now thanks so much for joining us Yeah, no problem. Uh, I know you reopened and you uh, have talked about how the reopening actually went quite well, given uh, these new rules and the rules that were in place. Uh, Things are a bit more strict now with what was announced yesterday. How will that affect your business?
3: Well, the the public health order hasn't come out yet, so I'm sort of counting down. I believe it's going to be around three sometime. But the only thing that would I'd say put a nail in the coffin is if we'd have to close by 11 p.m., because in our prime... Say, you know, six months, a year ago, whatever it was, uh, 11 o'clock was when people would start to come out. And those guys are considered the early birds.
0: <laughs> and do you think, <laughs> is it going to, is there going to be a, a timing or that you're going to be told that you have to close earlier?
3: Uh, four out of six articles I read, you know, um, I don't remember Global CBC, so on and so on. Uh, four of them said there was going to be an 11 o'clock curfew, whereas two of them didn't mention it. Uh, I called Bihar, our health authority, and they said they wouldn't uh, put too much stock in uh in anything until the public health order comes out. So, what we know for sure, or not for sure, sorry, but what the uh, health authority has said is probably going to happen is the no, table service only and no bar service. But that was sort of the direction we were heading in anyway. We maybe had 20%, maybe 15% bar service. The rest was tables anyway because we built so many booths in the club and cut off the dance floor. Uh, that said, uh, what you were saying before—that no dancing, don't mingle, don't push chairs together—that that, that stuff—we've been doing since we reopened, and we've been called a military camp from a lot of people. But it was like I thought that's what was in the public health order, or what was advised anyway. So um, that won't change for us.
0: So because because you were allowing some dancing, weren't you?
3: No, no. Oh, okay. um, I I might have flip flopped a bit. Maybe mm-hmm. at the beginning I said, uh, who knows what will happen, but. What we did, because we had to uh, have 50 seats, is we uh, ended up just making our dance floor uh, full of tables just to meet that 50 seating requirement. Okay. So I might have said I was going to, but that was sort of at the beginning when I might not have known everything.
0: And how are the, the new restrictions also talk about line, lineups and places like, I think, places like a coat check or places where you would normally see crowding. How are you able to deal with that?
3: Well, in our, I don't know if uh, VHA and our health inspectors were ahead of the curve, but um, we we weren't allowed to have crowding in our lineups or at the co-check as it was. So uh, the way it happened was the door person would uh, only let one group in at a time anyway, and the rest of the people would have to wait outside. Once that group was brought to their table, the next group could enter. So again, a lot of these things, like, I, I don't know if, uh, our health authority just interpreted them extra strict to be cautious? Or it's just being clarified even more now? I'm not sure because this is what we were doing from the beginning.
0: And how did customers respond to coming back and to having these rules?
3: Yeah, well, luckily, I think the grocery stores took uh, trained everybody to be a little bit more patient. So all those incidents and rude behavior that happened at the beginning, we didn't get a lot of just because we were what... March, April, May, June, three months in, people sort of got the idea at that point. There was a few people and groups that would come in from other establishments who were not necessarily uh, as strict as us saying, well, we didn't have to do it at so-and-so or they didn't make us do this at this place. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, if you want us to stay open, if you want to have a good time, if you want to keep coming out every Saturday, you're going to have to comply with our rules. And what I found, and maybe it's not necessarily a good sample size, but it was a lot of the older people, older than me anyway, I'm only 29, um, were were saying I was power tripping and they didn't have to do what I was saying. But a lot of the younger crowd, my age or younger, was was definitely more compliant.
0: Which is interesting because that's the opposite of what we've been hearing and what people, I think, are thinking about the ages and who's complying.
3: I know. I was reading the news. I said complete opposite for us. I don't know if it's just our demographic here. I, I don't know. Uh,
0: and how is, how is your staff doing? Because I've heard this from restaurants, uh, other places as well, that you suddenly have to become the police and you have to be policing everybody's movements. And if you see a group, see somebody table hopping or you see a group that's bigger than six, you have to be on it and, and be aware of all of these things that in the past your job would have been to deliver drinks and make sure people weren't over drinking. And now you have to take on all of this
3: yeah it's tough so we have a lot of stressed staff and on two occasions now um they've asked us to shut down the staff said listen the people are too out of control uh i don't think that we can uh enforce the rules correctly or you know if if somebody comes in or somebody if someone came in or someone filmed this and sent it to the health authority would probably be shut down so i recommend you shut down and we did it twice now somewhere around the 12:30 one o'clock mark uh the staff definitely doesn't like it at least the the enforce it the enforcement aspect of it The masks and the hand sanitizer, I think everyone's on board with.
0: Right. I would imagine, too, just the nature of a club. By the time you get to one in the morning or later, that's when people have maybe been drinking more. As we know, drinking and following rules don't often go together all that well. So it would make sense that you might see people not complying as the night goes on.
3: That's right. I think my in-laws said uh, nothing good happens after two o'clock or something. So that makes sense. Uh, People do get rowdy around that time. And I think that uh, I read in, in, I don't know if it was Dr. Bonnie Henry or someone else who interpreted her words in the news yesterday said that a lot of the, um, it was like, Uh, I don't remember the exact wording, but nothing good happens after 11 o'clock, essentially, what my understanding was she said yesterday, too. That's when people get a little out of control or something.
0: Right. So you're waiting for the health order to officially come down. If it does say you have to close at 11, will you even bother staying open?
3: No, no, absolutely not. Uh, I want to, once it comes out, I'm going to call the health authority and ask them what the rules are on private parties because weddings, funerals, not to say we're in the same uh, calibre as that by any means, but I'd like to know if we can say someone has a birthday party and they want to rent out the club with 25 people, are they expected to social distance because it's the same uh, group? Like, mm-hmm. can you rent out a hall? Because if you're renting out a hall for a wedding, uh, those people don't have to social distance from my understanding. Uh so would that apply if the same group rented out the club for the night? So we might go strictly private party if it does if it is the 11 and because we're not open to the public and we're just a venue are we uh, are are we uh, necessarily within the boundaries of that 11 o'clock rule?
0: Yeah, a lot of questions. And then with today, the new announcement coming that places that rent uh, things such as Airbnb, houseboats, uh, private rooms are now facing more restrictions. So I don't know if that applies to you as well.
3: Probably not. Um, I don't think we have. There's much of a houseboat scene here, and I'm not sure about the Airbnb.
0: I don't think I can comment on that. All right. Well, we will wait and see what is written in the the orders that are forthcoming. Sebastian, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Appreciate it. Yeah,
3: appreciate me having me on.
0: All right. As you've been hearing in the news, the B.C. government announced earlier today that as of September 21st, anyone that is caught opening the door of a parked vehicle when it is not necessary or not reasonably safe to do so, this is something called dooring, could face a fine of $368. And that is an increase of the current fine, which is $81. So let's talk to Navdeep Pachina, acting executive director at Hub Cycling. Navdeep, thanks for joining us today to talk about this.
2: Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: I would imagine cyclists would be pleased. I mean, better if this never happened, but would be pleased that at least the, the penalty for this is going up.
2: Yes, I think uh, that's a very positive step forward. And this is something we have been advocating for a long time. Uh, and this is something we can definitely build on.
0: Uh, how big of a problem is Doring?
2: Uh, it is one of the uh, most common reason of fatality uh, when it involves people cycling and people uh, driving, especially in urban neighborhoods. So it is a really, really big concern. And also the uh, the chance of injury, severe injury is very high as
0: well. Uh, any idea how often it happens, how many times a month or how many times a year in Vancouver?
2: I, I don't have those stats. And unfortunately, um, it just gets reported only if somebody really
0: injured or somebody
2: dies in this crash. Otherwise, most of the time, we don't even hear about them. Right.
0: Uh, is it also a, a, an issue of how things are designed in that there are a lot of places that have the designated bike lanes that, that separate bike lanes, bikes and vehicles, but is it a design of streets, even some with bike lanes, that cyclists do are cycling very close to parked vehicles?
2: Definitely. Uh, the lack of safe infrastructure is the reason why we are having this conversation. Uh, The fine is great. It's a great deterrent. But still, it's uh, what really saves people's life is safe infrastructure. So uh, I'm hoping that the promise uh, will continue on uh, by investing more in building safe infrastructure When you build separated bike lanes, it not only protects uh, people cycling, but it also makes the road safer for people driving. So they don't have those conflicts with the people cycling.
0: And is there a role for cyclists to play in this as well, in that it must also depend on the speed that a cyclist is going. The faster you're going, if this happens, you're going to get more severely injured. Is it being aware of people who have just parked and of your speed and how close you are to the vehicles?
2: It's it's, uh, it's difficult to say that. Um, a, a person uh, cycling is already very aware of his surroundings or her surroundings by looking at the traffic on their sides and other people around them. So this just adds an unnecessary burden on them to look out for people uh, that might be waiting in their car and suddenly open the door. <laughs>
0: Is it an unnecessary burden, though, in that everybody, whether you're a pedestrian, a cyclist, a vehicle driver, everybody has a certain, has to be accountable for their actions of being part of the roadway, don't they?
2: Yes, but uh, the responsibility is when you park, uh, you wouldn't do that if there was a car coming behind you. The uh, the onus is not on the person driving to watch for the person in front suddenly opening their door on, uh, on them. The same way, a person cycling should be safe in their dedicated bike lane. And again, it comes back to lack of safe infrastructure for people cycling. There are more uh, people cycling currently, and uh, this lack of infrastructure makes it dangerous, and it also prevents more people from adapting cycling as a mode of transportation.
0: Uh, There's something uh, that I I believe they do it is it in in the Netherlands that it's it's very well known that if you're a driver when you park instead of opening the door with your left hand the idea is to reach over with your right hand and in doing so you're forced to look over your shoulder does there need to be more education because it seems uh, until the infrastructure is there it seems like that simple switch could actually help help reduce this a lot.
2: You're very correct, uh, Jill. Um, we actually, along with, uh, local co-op, Modo Carsia. We did a campaign, it's called the Dutch Reach, where exactly what you said, when you're opening the door, reach with your right hand, that forces you to look over your shoulder. And uh, from what I've heard from the ministry, they are planning to run an education campaign as well. Uh, they, they will, I think it's sometime in September, they are planning to teach people to be more aware of their surroundings and be more responsible while opening, especially by using the Dutch Reach.
0: Uh, because it does seem I, I mean, I, I've heard of it before. And I just thought of it today when when I saw that this had been announced, and we were going to talk to you, but I don't think I've ever seen in BC or in Vancouver or in Metro Vancouver, a real push or any kind of organized campaign to get people even aware that that's something that 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 very small step can make such a huge difference.
2: You're correct again, and it is one of the basic things that everybody knows in the Netherlands that do the Dutch reach when you're opening a door. And uh, yes, uh, uh, the lack of education and promotion is the reason why we don't hear much about it, uh, but uh, we are hoping that the ministry will spend resources on educating uh, people driving as well as people cycling to be better and uh, at sharing the roads with each other.
0: All right. Uh, We will leave it there for today. Navdeep, Chena, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Well, child care spaces were a big part of the current government's election campaign. They have been a big part of the platform. A lot of promises on not only $10 a day daycare, but now, given the COVID-19 pandemic, promises about child care spaces opening, getting more spaces opened for parents in this province. And John Horgan, our premier, spoke about this this morning as he held his weekly briefing.
2: What we've learned from the pandemic is child care is not a social program program, it's an economic imperative to ensure that we have everyone fully participating in the economy. Women, men, families need to have confidence that their children are being cared for. British Columbia had been making great progress before the pandemic and I think it's time for us to double down now to make sure we're increasing more spaces, training more early childhood educators so that we can have a robust, accessible, quality, affordable childcare system here in British Columbia.
0: Sharon Gregson is a child care advocate and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. It's always my pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Uh, is the government doing enough? They had an announcement uh, just a day ago, I believe as well, talking about opening 700 more spaces, uh, bringing those spaces online. Are they doing enough, do you think, when it comes to child care?
4: Well, we always knew this was going to be a 10-year endeavor. The situation for childcare was so bad that nobody could have fixed it overnight. So have they made significant progress? Yes, absolutely. Are we hearing the right commitment from the Premier and the Minister of State for Child Care? Yes, absolutely. Are there is there still a lot of work to do and some things we would like them to tweak? Yes, absolutely. But the kind of message that you we just heard from the Premier is a, such a relief for families across the province to know that you know, we're actually now headed in the right direction around building a universal childcare system. It's what we've been waiting for.
0: A lot of parents, though, seem very stressed out still, though, and worried about what's going to happen in September. Absolutely, there's
4: th- things are terrible. You can be on a waiting list for years. It's terrible to try and find infant childcare or school-age childcare. is horrendous. The cost—we've still got families paying up to twenty $2,000, two, twenty six hundred dollars a month for one childcare space. We've got early childhood educators who aren't even making a living wage. There is so much work to be done, which is why it's so important to have the government recommit to the $10 a day plan and to have parents across and employers across the province continue to join the campaign and pressure government to use federal dollars and provincial dollars to implement the plan.
0: Do you think, though, can it be done in, in, like you said, it's a 10-year plan. This pandemic has kind of thrown a wrench into it in that some centres closed, some stayed open for essential workers. There were more people who couldn't find childcare spaces. Do you think there, there is, it's possible even to deal with that and to get that resolved as we head back into the school year with whatever that's going to look like?
4: Yeah, so I mean, the, if there could be a silver lining of the pan, of the pandemic, it is now. That everybody from Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Premier and the Prime Minister have had to admit that child care is a priority. So we've seen the federal government put forward 19 billion dollars for what they're calling a safe recovery. Unfortunately for all their um, discussion on child care only 3% of that is being set aside for child care. So we're really putting the pressure on them to have a second announcement. Um, specifically around an increased childcare investment coming in the next month or two, and you're right. If elementary schools don't open five days a week for all children in September, there is nowhere else for those children to go. There are not empty school-age childcare programs waiting to care for children between nine and three every day, so their parents can work. So it will be a huge mess. But we have heard. Minister Fleming say his goal is to get elementary schools open for September. So then we're back to worrying about before and after school care. There is a solution to that. Every kindergarten classroom in the province could be a school-age child care pro- uh, program if school districts want it to be.
0: Isn't there a lot of pushback to that, though? Even when talking to people who run after-school care programs, they don't use classrooms because there's not that crossover of using a classroom, a teacher's classroom, then for childcare. They use the other more common areas.
4: Right, but... Um, just before COVID got underway, we did see an order coming from the provincial government and Minister Fleming speaking to changes that now make it easier for school districts to actually be child care operators. And so we're seeing it already in school districts like Oliver, where the kindergarten classroom is being used for before and after school child care. Uh, and as child care moves more and more into the Ministry of Education and out of the uh, MCFD, which is a child protection ministry, um, it makes sense that we'll start to see more school districts step up and want to be school, um, child, care, school, uh, school child care operators.
0: And are there the the people to work it? You mentioned people, early childhood educators, and there's long been issues and concerns about uh, salaries. Uh, The Premier, uh, the Minister have talked about training more people. Are there people there available, uh, even if we have the space to make sure those programs can be up and running?
4: I'm so glad you, you mentioned this because we'll never have a quality childcare system without investing in educators. And there are lots of people in British Columbia who've got their ECE credential, but they're not working in the sector because the current wages, even with the provincial government top up of $2 an hour, are still not adequate. So a couple of weeks ago, the Coalition of Childcare Advocates and ECEBC released a competitive province-wide wage grid, which we're encouraging the province to implement, which would have starting wages for early childhood educators of $26 an hour. And so we're encouraging the province to look at implementing that wage grid, because better wages are the only way to keep people in the sector.
0: And I know you've been a longtime proponent of $10 a day childcare. There are, uh, I think it's around 30,000 people in BC that are part of that program. Uh, Do you think it will be delayed or there's going to be issues with expanding that because of the pandemic?
4: No, on the contrary. I think as government wants to get more people back into the workforce and families need to be able to get their income um, back to where it was, then 10 a day becomes even more important. And so the pressure is on the provincial government to expand the number of 10 a day sites and the number of families across the province who are paying 10 a day or less for their child care. So if anything, there is increased pressure for the province to um, expand and to for the Premier to be a champion in his negotiations with Ottawa to make sure there are dedicated child care dollars with strings attached to make sure they're spent to lower fees and create more spaces and pay educators better wages. So now is the time, as the Premier said, to double down on his commitment.
0: All right. uh, Sharon, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much, though, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take good care. Bye for now.